market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, maybe doesn't go further with a dollar mart account. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the good doctor, Dr. Nibar Mahati. How are you, buddy? Uh, I'm very good. There's a lot of controversy these days with using doctor, you know? What? Oh, I did see that. There's a lot of controversy. Can Apparently, you be, you're only allowed to be called a doctor if you're a medical doctor. It seems like it. Well, that's you know that's that's what some people claim. I I am strongly opposed. To that <laughs> <claim>. <laughs> I oh man, you, that's a massive tension you started. So I think the whole the whole thing is ludicrous. The whole idea that you know you're, you're if you're officially qualified as a doctor, so you can't use the title because some other one also uses the title is just madness. So I mean, here's a big question though. Crazy. So if a doctor can be doctor, can a dentist be a doctor? Well, then you've got exactly. I, I think I, I think we should pose this question to the dental union or the dentist union, and <laughs> and and then they can decide. Now, you're not a medical doctor, but I'm also told that surgeons like to be called Mister rather than Doctor, or actually Misses. I don't really know the female version. Really? I was told once upon a time that the GPs and specialists like to be called Doctor, but if you're a surgeon or some sort of surgeon, you want to be called Mister. I don't really. Under, I don't know. What do I know? Well, I'm, I'm told that was true. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Should we move on then? Yeah. Sure. I'm going to keep calling you Doc and I'm going to keep calling you Dr. Mahati because you've bloody well earned the title and you deserve to be, uh, deserve it to be used. Uh, you can call me Bachelor Phillips or Graduate Diploma Phillips. It doesn't quite have the same, uh, doesn't have quite have the same ring, mate. So you've got that over me. All right. Speaking of titles, the US now, maybe, possibly, finally, officially has a president. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about more good news. I, I am just super excited about so much good news in the economy. I'm really cool. Really excited about that. Uh, coal, speaking of, well, the opposite of good news is bad news. The latest commodity to be caught up in the Australia-China crossfire. We've got some big fines for one of Australia's highest profile biotech names. We've got a, well, a, a tech stock. A couple of tech stocks. So interesting tech stock kind of conversation. We've got Afterpay and Zero on a tear. Altium, though, one of the other wax stocks, not doing quite so well. An early Christmas present for bank shareholders. The aforementioned dollar mite accounts, we'll talk about that. And I will ask you, mate, for a little bit of advice for brand new retail investors because there's an article out today about exactly that. And, of course, it wouldn't be a Motley Full Money podcast episode without tipping into the full mailbag. After that tangent, I think I can assume we should just get on with it. What do you reckon? I think so. Let's do it. Now, we're recording this a little bit earlier than normal. I normally say, as always, on a Thursday, we're recording this one on a Wednesday, partly because I'm indisposed tomorrow, partly because we're getting closer to Christmas, so schedules are changing all over the place. Good news, or bad news if you don't like our podcast, but if you don't, hopefully you're not listening anymore, is we're going to publish on schedule every single day we normally publish right through the Christmas period, mate. So we love our listeners. We want to make sure you've got something to listen to. If you need to tune out from uh, Uncle Albert at, uh, at the Christmas party or at Christmas dinner, or maybe you just need something to uh, entertain you as most of the, uh, well, you know, some of the higher rated TV shows and, and other things go on holidays over the Christmas break, we will still be here. So are the rest assured or I apologize in advance, depending on how good or bad they are. But as I said, hopefully if you don't like it, you're not listening anymore. The new US president though, mate, was confirmed as much as these things are done by the Electoral College on our Tuesday morning this week. Uh, Joe Biden officially getting more than 270 Electoral College votes and making him the official president-elect. Now, there's still a bit of a gap between now and this is the 20th of January when he's officially inaugurated. So I don't know how many opportunities are left for uh, lawsuits or other things to happen, but in theory, Biden is home. At the same time, we saw renewed hopes, partly as a result of economic stimulus in the US and, of course, the rollout of the vaccine, which means that, as we said, as we record on Wednesday morning, the market was up 1.1% in the US market overnight. And it seems like American investors are kind of prepared to bake in the good news again. After a couple of weeks, we had a cracking November, a great start to December, toughish last week, but it seems like everything's back and going full steam ahead. Yeah, like, I mean, again, like I I, I don't really... So, like, I mean, the, the president-elect is the president-elect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we know that going, there's going to be a new president on January 20th. Um, I sort of always, almost always look past those things mm. because, I mean, in the short term, there's sort of, you know, there's all these trades, you know, am I going to cycle out of growth stocks to value stocks, uh, growth stocks to being <laughs> down stocks? Um, am I going to mm. go into those so-called recovery plays? I just don't invest like that. So, you know, like, I mean, I'm not looking for that 30% bump right. uh, that a recovery stock may get. Uh, because I actually don't care about that at all. Right, right. So uh, a lot of that, you know, excitement doesn't excite me at all. Uh, so let me ask you the question then. To, to that extent, I, I I feel a little bit the same, but I occasionally wonder to myself: 
am I missing the opportunity? I mean, yes, we have our preferred investing styles and you and I are reasonably similar in, in, in kind of principle, but different in style. You're obviously a higher growth investor than me and you're prepared to invest early and hold longer and all, lots of that sort of stuff. But neither of us tend to play that kind of recovery idea. I have to say though, is there something a little bit too, and again, I'm asking myself as much as you, is there something a little too kind of ideologically um, concrete about that view when we miss the opportunity? I mean, if there are businesses out there that are going to do 10, 20, 30% better by by riding that recovery wave, aren't we to some degree kind of being too pedantic, too specific, too ideological and not simply saying, hey, there's money to be made over there. Why aren't we going to making some of that money? Oh, no, no I, I don't have actually, you know, there's a, you know, <clears throat> you know me and I, I'm, I'm actually very capitalist. If there's money to be made, I want to make <laughs> that money. Um, so the recovery trade has got to be interesting to you at least a little bit. Well, here's the thing though with the recovery trade, right? Number one, I need to free some capital. Mm-hmm. So if I have that free, the capital means I have to do what I call a pair trade, right? I have to sell a growth stock now right, right. to find some capital unless I have free capital sitting. Yeah. And then put that capital. So let's assume that I, I think, uh, and this is all fictitious, let's say, yeah. let's say ANZ shares, I think they're going to rise by 30%. To find that money for that ANZ shares, I have to sell something. Mm-hmm. Or, or I have to put some money that I've saved, which I was going to put towards some other company, towards ANZ. Right. By the way, there's an opportunity cost, right? If you buy ANZ shares, right. you can't either hold or buy something else. So that's number one. Okay. Number two in my mind is an opportunity An opportunity to trade like this mm-hmm. is basically short-term trade. And that means I have to think about capital gains that I might be paying because I have to get out. Sure. Number three, I have to be able to get out mm-hmm. at the right time. <laughs> so I have to get in at the right time, get out at the right time, have to hope that the PE expansion and the earnings expansion both happen. So it just appears too complex. It's complex it is not, already. It's complex. <laughs> it is possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is extremely complex. And yeah. I've found that, at least for myself, um, if I just buy the the companies that are going to compound at 30% plus their sales yeah. over you know, 10, 15, 20 years, the best of the best, mm-hmm. why do something more complicated, right? <laughs> now that said, the, you know, over in the, when, yeah, I, when yeah. I invest overseas, I do play recovery trade sometimes. Oh, okay. Right? And I'll play recovery trade like this. So if I see a company such as, say, Starbucks, right? And mm-hmm. I know people here don't like, um, you know, people in Australia would not like the Starbucks coffee, but, you I know. I find that way too snobby. I think, I, no, I'm not so much my favorite coffee, but I, I find the distaste for it are strange. No, no, it's not, it's not, it's not snobby. So I think, I think the thing is that people here associate coffee with, with a coffee culture. It's a little bit like the French coffee right, culture, yeah, right? Okay. I want to go to my cafe. I want to be recognized. <laughs> my I barista, wanna, right. My yeah, barista. Yeah. And I want yeah. to be a small, you know, small local yeah, shop. Yeah. Cafe, you know, uh, Starbucks is a chain, yeah, right? Yeah. And and maybe you don't get that feeling and, and things like that. I get that. Fair, fair. Anyways, that aside, it, it's a still a world-class brand yep. and it's going gangbusters where it would, would matter in oh. places like, you know, Asia, yeah. right? Right, uh, Asia and India, mm-hmm. um, growing really stro- strongly in America. So, for those sort of places, what I would assume is, well, okay, I can play the recovery. So, this is a, this is a type of company. If it gets sold off, mm-hmm. what I would do is I just buy. I'd go long calls with a long dated option. So basically, I have leveraged upside. Okay. And then instead of making thirty percent. I'm actually going to be making 100%. Right. Right. And by going long the call, I can actually afford to wait for a year mm. so that I get save on my capital gains. Right. So that's the type of trade I like to do if I'm okay. doing recovery. So yeah, I would never do a recovery trade on you know some bank bank shares and stuff like that. They just don't interest me. But but recovery are, trade, it sounds like you're saying to me it's a company-specific recovery trade where it's just something out of favor maybe rather than kind of economically saying the economy is going to rebound so I'm jumping on ANZ for example. Is that right or I just... Yeah, so I, as I said, I actually have a distaste for economic recovery stocks per se. I have, uh, I love stocks or companies where I think that, you know, like the long-term brand appeal of Starbucks is undeniably strong. It's yeah. not going to disappear. Okay. The long-term brand appeal of something like Disney, for example, yeah. is again undeniably strong. So those are companies where I think going long the call is a very smart trade right. because the the downside is actually relatively limited. Mm-hmm. The upside is actually probably a double or more. Okay. And if you can buy that at a you know, cheaper PE of normalized uh, P. Right, right, right. So there's a time for those sort of trades. Sometimes it's really hard to to do that. Like I, you know, during the pandemic, I did one on 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 Starbucks, and and that has really worked well. I should have done one on Disney. I didn't, <laughs> um, uh, but you know that would have worked really well mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. So um, again. Uh, sometimes I look at you know the, the company's debt load and that you know sort of say okay it's too much debt load and I don't want to do this because you know if yeah. you know too much debt load can always 
result in uh, <laughs> uh, your thesis not working out because yep. again you have a limited time frame. So I, I think this can be done, but okay. to be to be done profitably and in a meaningful fashion. Mm. Like again, thirty percent in six months does not interest me, mm-hmm. but hundred percent in six months does interest me. That's, that's a lot of upside. And and usually I would not actually keep it for six months. I would rarely keep it for a year because I'd like to get the 100% over, you know, or more or whatever I can get over over the year. That's for the capital gains tax benefit? Is yeah, that that's for the capital gains, right. gains tax benefit. Nice, nice. I, yeah, like I'm I'm more open to it. I, it's funny, like you, you're, about, you're about opportunity cost you're about in terms of capital. I got to say for me, it's it's partly the same, partly an opportunity cost in terms of time and effort, quite honestly. Like I think there's probably other investment strategies out there that probably makes some sense. I've talked before, I think on the podcast, certainly on some other media stuff about, you know, if I was going to put together a recovery or an out of favor basket, um, you know, some oil stocks when the oil price is low, throw in some infrastructure companies, throw in, you know, there was, there was, and, and I think from time to time will be an opportunity to, to find a basket of un- unloved, undervalued stuff, knowing some of it won't recover by definition. So that's why you want to do a basket rather than individual stocks. Um, I, I would imagine there's probably some decent money to be made from that strategy, but I have to say, I just don't have the the mental bandwidth and, and some people got the financial bandwidth, as you say, but just simply like everything else that we do in our days and, and, and you know, personally and professionally, um, I, I just, to, to do that, to, to kind of reorient my entire brain to do something as well as having a two-pronged strategy that is so different from my main one, I, I just, I'm not sure that it would actually be a, a net benefit to my portfolio, but almost for that reason alone, right? How long do I spend trying to find the turnaround, the recovery ideas, investigating them, understanding them? If they're stocks that don't fit my long-term perspective, then I've got to learn all about them from, not from scratch, we know enough about those companies, but imagine trying to get to, you know, trying to value ANZ from scratch or trying to value, I don't know, pick your company, any, any recovery stock, right? unless you're following it, you know enough about it to have a view. It's a, it's a tough it's a tough thing to try and do some attention-wise and, and timeframe-wise, given everything else we've got on our plates. You know, investors are better off completely blanking out ANZ, CBA, <laughs> Westpac from their minds in terms of, you know, your mm. mind would be uncluttered. And uncluttering of the mind has immense benefit, you know. If you want to buy, if you want to invest in that size, yes. just buy Starbucks or Disney or something like that. Don't invest in companies that are, like, never going to really substantially grow their earnings. They've got limited, you know, they're operating in limited markets. Mm-hmm. So you're, mar- just, you're marie condoing your your portfolio by getting rid of the banks. It doesn't well, spark it's, joy. It's, it's, owning the banks to me is the silliest <laughs> trade that exists. I know that a lot of people do it, and they do it because they've done it. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think. Hey, look, I, I, you know, I'm a little bit less uh, forthright on that. I think there's probably well, there has been times over the last. I mean, the banks are up 20 percent in November alone, right? So again, back to that recovery trade. There's something there potentially. There's times to make it. I think to your point though. Um, over the long term, the chance of outperforming with the banks as a buy and hold investor was remarkably different. Which is exactly what I'm saying, right? Yeah. If you're going to make 20% on the banks, I'm saying you yeah. make 100% on Disney or Starbucks. So you can dump the banks anytime and every time and mm. still be ahead. Mm. Very true. All right, man, let's, um, let's uh, speak of ANZ, dear idea. That was a terrible tangent, but um, I'll ask you to put your dislike for ANZ aside for a second. Um, Look, you know, I'm you know I'm an optimist, mate. I, some people that that's frustrating. I, I get that, I understand that. But I got to say, another bit of good news again this week from Roy Morgan, and I have they so said this the ANZ Roy Morgan survey. Roy Morgan is the has has been at least the way they structure their research. I don't, I don't claim this about the company or the person. Um, they've been on the more pessimistic side of most of this data recently because they have their own view of things like unemployment or underemployment, where they simply just choose a different metric to what everyone else is talking about. You can argue whether that's more realistic, more pessimistic, doesn't really matter. Um, but to the extent that we've had positive data, Roy Morgan's always been at the bottom end of that positivity because of the way they've chosen to design their stats. But this new, this good news this week coming out that even their consumer confidence measure saying we are now more confident than we were before COVID. And I've got to, I got to say, on the back of four, five, six weeks of almost weekly positive data, it really does give me a strong sense, and we'll get to something I might bring this and done in a minute, but that there really is some reason to believe, hopefully, possibly, maybe, um, that the recovery is is meaningfully underway and continues to be underway with not a lot of reason to believe it won't continue on for at least a reasonable amount of time, um, simply because the the, uh, the the economic data that matters, the, the economic activity, economic engine, seems to be whirring back to life and, and gaining strength and gaining speed. Yeah, again, like, you know, my views on this is that <laughs> I actually don't care about those data points, I really. Um, because, again, I think they are misleading investing-wise, mm-hmm. uh, especially misleading because they all talk about, for a couple of different reasons, right? Um, one, they're very short-term. Yes. Two, they're very local-focused. 
the world is yeah. I, I, the world is increasingly globalized right mm-hmm. so and three i think they're all tainted by um by stimulus right yes so i i think at a at a basic human level this is great but I think this can be very misleading for investing because mm-hmm. what do you do? You invest in retail stocks or banks? I mean, again, uh, I think the investing lesson there, so what is is a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. They, and fundamentally though, here's the, here's the question I would ask, right? What has changed in the last year mm. that makes Australia as a group mm. more confident now mm. than it was 12 months ago? Do you know what's funny? I think, I think to some degree the answer is actually that the, for, for most people, most accounts, the economy was weakening leading into COVID for, for non-COVID reasons. And so to some degree, it was kind of one of those, okay, well, things feel like they're spluttering, wage growth's not happening, unemployment seems to be going up. Like there was kind of this sense of gentle but continued erosion is probably the best way I can put it. And I think to some degree, frankly, and I, said this, I think I said this last week or the week before, starting from a low base means that any, anything, anything better is still is increased confidence. You know, the question about confidence is, is are you feeling good about the future? And to some degree, the further down the hole you are, as you start to dig yourself out of that hole, by definition, going from terrible to less terrible is a higher degree of confidence than you had previously. So to some degree, it's that it's that return to, or the view of returning to normalcy to some degree, because we are in a, or have been in a COVID hole, digging ourselves out of that makes us more confident. So that the, the, the idea that I think the future is brighter than the past holds in large part because A, we've been in a terrible position, but also that the the... the Economic activity, the experiences, the confidence, the life in general feels better than it was and feels like it's going in the right direction. I think that's the difference for me that is different to pre-COVID where things were going reasonably well 30 years without a recession but but some of this steady erosion. It feels like a different mindset, a different framework, a different direction the economy is heading now. Yeah, so, so you just answered my question, right? So it's a basically a mindset. We just feel that way. Maybe it's not mm. that way actually, sure. right? So, Except that we know that confidence does drive behavior, right? So there's something element of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy in both directions. If you're worried about the future, you stop spending. If you're confident about the future, you start or keep spending or increase your spending. So there is something self-fulfilling about those confidence on a business and consumer level. Yeah, so I think, that, I think, I think, I think all of that makes sense. I, I think what it does though is, again, it goes back to talking about those metrics which I think are increasingly less relevant mm. when you want to invest um, with a really long-term horizon, right? I mean, um, people right. want to spend more, but how do I use that for investing? Yeah. Do, I, do I go and buy some retail stocks? Do I go and buy some uh, <laughs> bank yeah. stocks? What yeah. do I do? What do I yeah. do with it? And, and I, th- I, think, um, I think that's good, but I think, again, I would be careful about what investing lesson I take. I mean, I mean broadly speaking, though, Nothing has substantially changed between then and now, right? So we should be feeling, yeah. from an economic yeah. point of view, from a logical point of view, nothing has substantially changed. Mm-hmm. Everything is really the same. Sure. All the struggles that remained at that point were there. All the struggles that did, were not there are not there today. Yeah. What we were happy about then, our cars. <laughs> if, if we were happy with our car <laughs> right. or television then, right, we're right. still happy with our car and television now, right? right? So, you know, sales are up. That's a positive. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is a left <laughs> brain, know, right brain sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you remove the emotional <laughs> component out of it, all the yeah. challenges the economy had then, it still has. Yeah. All the challenges the economy did not have then, mm-hmm. it still does not have those challenges, right? So it's yeah. nothing has substantially changed in that sense. I'm but, curious to... Oh, go on, sorry. Yeah, that, that's really odd. Uh, would, would, your, would your view change if you invest in different stocks? I mean, again, we, I know you've, you've been very clear about your bank view, but if you're, if you're the average Australian investor as represented by the ASX or the All Lords or whatever, whatever metric you want to use... If you were exposed to banks and retailers, both discretionary and, and staples, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, by the way. I think we've been we've been clear in the past that there is there is very little, if any, correlation between GDP and and share prices. But at a very fundamental level, if we take the share price bit out of it for a little bit, I, I would I would hazard a guess that Australian businesses are more likely to be prosperous in the future, less likely to go broke. Those things that come with increasing economic activity, better economic circumstances, even if they're not perfect, even if they're not as good as they could or should be. Um, there, there is something if you're if you're invested in the Australian economy itself, the things that the Australian economy does that are represented by the ASX. Would your view be different? I mean, I, I personally feel for my stocks that a stronger economy is is a stronger fundamental base for those businesses. Again, the share prices tend to move on sentiment in the short term. So I'm not suggesting, as you rightly point out, that higher GDP equals higher share prices. We know for a fact it's not true. At least there's no direct correlation. But I do feel better about the companies I own, knowing that if if I'm right, if the economy is recovering, that the future is brighter than the car, the present, that should at least 
put my businesses on a on a firmer fundamental footing. Well, well, here's the, that's the thing, right? That's exactly the point I was trying to get to. So, if you're interested in a business that is solely local, yeah, that makes sense, yes, right? Yes. But increasingly, businesses should be global because if they're not global, they're at a disadvantage because sure. they're operating at a smaller market. They're going to be growing slowly, or they're going to be, you know, at the whims of mm. the uh, economic cycle and things like that, totally. right? Now, for global investing, I think just looking at the local sentiment really does not help, right? So, I, I mean, I don't know. Take mm. treasury wine as an example. Mm. Does mm. it really matter how Australians are feeling? Mm. It does not, mm. right? Because that only impacts a small portion of its business, yeah. right? So, I think, uh, yes, it helps the, the banks and the local retailers. And, you know, I, I guess it helps... If you're invested in franchised operations, I think it helps there. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so, so it, I think, I think, yeah. if you're exposed to if you're exposed to economic turnover, if you're if you're exposed right. to economic turnover, right, and and that really, uh, personally, I find that side of investing to be most dangerous, most most volatile, mm. more exposed, less growth opportunity, less upside. Because, you know, effectively, if a small business there is going to grow, it has to take share from someone. Yeah. So occasionally you can find someone who's yes. going to be taking share from somebody else. Yeah. But it's really like, you know, you have to slaughter <laughs> something yeah. to win, yes. right? Yes. And more often than not, they're not creating new markets, mm -hmm. right? So That's absolutely true. Uh, yeah, yeah, so they're not creating new markets. They're all old school businesses, right? So if, if I'm a gym operator, the only way I'm going to grow is if I can take away some if I can say, for example, aggregate other gyms, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but if I'm selling an online service called mm -hmm. I am going to give you fitness, whatever, <laughs> yeah. well, and I'm going to maybe sell you a bike with that, yeah. then your global your market is the globe, yeah, totally. and you have now all of a sudden disrupted the gyms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's just, I guess, fundamentally, I just operate differently, and my, yeah. uh, my, my horizon is just a little longer, and I tend to look at all businesses in a very global fashion. And the reason I do that is the world is increasingly globalized. Mm -hmm. And that's where the biggest opportunities are. Mm -hmm. And there there will be local companies, but they are not going to be buffeted as much by what happens in the GB. I, I, I think what the, the positive for me here is it basically means if people are feeling good, maybe they're earning well. If they're earning well, they're feeling good. If they're feeling good, they have jobs, they can save right, and right. invest. So I think it has a flow-on effect on investing. Correct. But if the investing dollars are then going to the wrong places, <laughs> at least in my, <laughs> my view, yeah. then you know, you're know yeah. you back, back into that cycle. Getting, getting, getting a step 9 out of 10 and then falling over. Yeah, yeah I, 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 think, I, I think that's... But yeah, I mean, overall, if there are more jobs being created, that's good because yeah. it, you know, it, it just makes the overall living conditions for yeah. Yeah. the country as a whole better, mm -hmm. right? Less people on the, you know, less people uh, looking for help from the government, less people are likely to be on, you know, um, see foreclosures for their businesses. Mm -hmm. All of those things that are good. But I think I would ask, what's the next step out of that? Yeah. Right. And, you know, save, invest, and but invest wisely. Mm. Makes sense. I like it, mate. Let's um, let's move on to some big stuff. Coal. Um, and again, this is this has got company ramifications, got economic ramifications. It has a whole lot of potential ramifications because of what might come next. And news this week, I think it was this week, maybe late last week, they're all merging into one as we get closer to Christmas. Um, China is going to knock back coal from Australia, which could be a $16 billion problem for our economy. We saw coal company prices. This is fascinating. I hadn't actually, we don't follow miners that closely as our listeners well know. Um, coal companies fell. I looked at New Hope and Whitehaven, just as kind of two of the kind of, you know, um, most prominent coal miners in the country. They fell 5% on the news, 4.8%, both almost exactly the same percentage fall, which was bizarre to me. Um, but on the back of New Hope, the year to date was down something like 33%, including that five. Whitehaven down almost half over the last 12 months. And it really, it was fascinating to me because the the bounce back economically seems to have lifted most boats. The old, the old line of rising tide lifts all boats. These boats have got a meaningful hole in them from the sound of it because it wasn't just the most recent tariff, or, or not even tariff, they just, China have told their, their, uh, their steelmakers just simply not to water Australian coal, which is worse than a tariff. Um, but it, it really had a, you know, a massive impact on these companies, but the share price were already down meaningfully. And I got to, again, maybe it's, maybe it's back in the same conversation about the, the recovery trade or, or what, what's going on. There's, there's economics, there's environment, there's, there's frankly geopolitics with China doing what China, well, I was going to say does best, does most impactfully at the moment, which is to give us all a black eye and a bloody nose if it chooses to. So 
where, where, I don't know what it was. There's so much, so many different components of that. So let me just ask you your response to the latest banning of coal from Australia into China, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's long-term ramifications, whether it's company specifics, whether it's economic. What do you think when you hear and, and read those headlines and, and the stories that go with them? Can I say all of them above? <laughs> you can, you can. So, can you give me a little bit more? Because otherwise, the podcast will be very short. So, so here's the thing with coal, though. So, if if I was invested in a coal company, well, first of all, I would not be invested in a yes, coal right. company uh, to start off. If yep. if I heard somebody was invested and they were asking for my opinion, yeah. uh, not advice, opinion, I would say sell <laughs> and run because yeah, yeah. that's, in my opinion, a declining industry right. overall, right? And uh, maybe this ban basically just accelerates the decline. My so yes, this this whole thing uh-huh. has political ramp- ramifications. It's coming because of that. But here's the funny thing, right? The only reason this ban could be placed on uh-huh. shell and coal is because coal is completely a replaceable commodity. Anything, yeah. you know, any good goods that can be replaced by another identical looking good from somewhere else yeah. can be replaced, which yeah. basically means you've got no protection. Yeah. Um, and that's what's happening with coal right now, right? I mean, you can replace uh, Australian coal with Russian coal, I don't know, Mongolian coal, um, <laughs> yeah, right, Indonesian exactly. coal, Indian yep, coal, yep, whatever yep. coal is available, right? Yep. So maybe it costs a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, if everybody's printing their own money, you can just pay <laughs> a little bit more. It doesn't really matter. Yep. Um, so I, I think that's the story of coal. Uh, anyways, I think the other thing is that if if uh, with uh, with the new president-elect, assuming that he's going to be the new president, you know, I think yeah. it's now looking more certain. Yes. They're going to join back the Paris Accord. There's going to be more pressure on, um, on essentially polluting industries. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, an industry in a long-term decline anyways. Um, I don't know. Like it's, again, one of those things that I just put in my unnecessary yeah. baskets yeah. to be yeah. dealing with and just put them aside. Um and yeah, it's good for us. Maybe you know, it's bad for us short term, but maybe it's good for us long term to think about you know, well, how do we replace this fourteen mm. billion dollar hole yeah, that's right. with something more meaningful uh, with the longer term prospect that doesn't come with carbon costs? It's a tough one, isn't it? <laughs> Can I say it was? Um, oh, this is this is slightly. I say political, or slightly slightly pointed. Um, today in the paper, we had both Scott Morrison bagging the Chinese because if they don't take our coal, they'll end up taking other coal that uh, has higher emissions, and that's somehow bad. At the same time, Treasurer Frydenberg was in the media saying that banks must not avoid lending to companies that present climate risks. So I kind of. <laughs> That's a that's a reasonably hard one to try and draw a straight line through. If you're saying on one hand, the banks have to keep lending to climate risk, and the other hand, China's uh, causing too many emissions. It's a it's an interesting it's an interesting problem to try and resolve. I have to say, you know, you know the problem here. Here's the thing, right? Yeah. The uh, I think this is again a classic example of I want to optimize the short term at the cost of the long term, right? I mean, basically, the climate opportunity. If you think about it, as, if you think about it as a cost, it's a cost. But if you think about it as an opportunity, those people who are going to be ahead in the climate game yeah. are going to be in those industries worth trillions of dollars. And that is such an important point, Matt. So I, I'll let you keep going, but I, it, that is so phenomenally, phenomenally important if you think about it from a, you know, the 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 stupid. I'll say stupidity on both sides of politics with the whole we've got to protect coal jobs is madness. I think I, I'm all for protecting the workers. But saying that those workers must remain in the current jobs they've got now because somehow those jobs are sacrosanct rather than let's actually give those workers something to do actually with the future in an industry that, as you say, is worth many billions of dollars down the track that actually can meaningfully change not only the environment but the economy. I mean, if if you're just a purely self-interested economist who doesn't give a stuff about the the environment, you still do it. You still say, hey, hang on, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs out there with nowhere near the sort of occupational risk, but literally in terms of risk of injury or death, but just the, the chance that it just simply gets taken away by becoming obsolete, it just, it makes, it, I just, other than for purely ideological reasons, it makes zero sense to me what's going on with with the way that both both sides, Joel Fitzgibbon from Labor, many in the Liberal National Party, this idea that coal jobs are more important than the coal workers, it just it defies belief. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really, really important fine point that you're making, right? I mean, there's a fine distinction there. The worker and the job, right? I mean, I, I think it's it's very easy um, to immediately say that, well, you know, the, the worker's job will be disappearing. We basically think the job and the worker are the same thing. They're not, right? And, and uh, I think, again, trying to have 
trying to create higher value by having IP mm, mm. is really important, right? It is, you know, it's very hard to have IP in digging coal. <laughs> it really but, is. I mean, you know, it's a very old industry. You're digging something from the yeah. ground. You're lucky that it's there in the ground. Yeah. Somebody's not lucky to have it in the ground, but it was going to be replaced by, I don't know, wind. Well, you all of a sudden went from being lucky to unlucky, <laughs> right? right? Uh, and all of a sudden, if people are going to tax it yep. because it is coal, yep. well, you went from being lucky to really, really unlucky. Yeah. So I, I, it's, I don't know what it is. It's, it is, um, should really be trying to get ahead mm. on, on, the, you know, on the climate. It's not being, you know, I'm not trying to be tree hugger, but what I'm saying is this is an opportunity to catch an industry yeah. which is going to grow rapidly. Uh, absolutely. Which is where, you know, as a small country, but with having technical expertise and technical leadership, you can actually create a lot of jobs yeah. and you can secure some of these jobs for maybe the next 20, 30 years. Again, and then something will change. Yeah. But, you know, it seems like every day it's an opportunity being lost. So, Crazy, well, yeah. And look, I, I will absolutely put on the record completely up front, I think climate change is real and we need to do something about it. So I have no problems with that. If you don't like that, I apologize, but that's my view. And hopefully you're listening here because you want our honest opinions rather than us to pander to you. So that's my honest view. But as you say, Doc, even from even separating that out purely economically, it just makes a whole lot more sense to be, as Wayne Gretzky, the famous ice hockey player said, skating to where the puck's going to be, not where the puck is. You, you I'm going to take a massive left-hand tangent here because you, you mentioned something you made in it started a kernel of the thought that I could probably flesh out, but I'd rather you flesh it out because it was your thought and also you've probably got some thoughts on it. It's it's interesting. So I just, I'll reflect back what I heard from you and then just get your comment on it whatever, whatever direction this takes you. You talked about the idea of, you know, you be you can be best in the world at coal. There might not be any IP, but you've, you've got it there, it's there. And you know, that, that in itself is its own competitive advantage if it's if it's available if it's local if it's close to a port there are things that are they're not ip in any meaningful sense but they are competitive advantages if you've got more of it it's easier to get out cheaper to get out closer to the port closer to your customers whatever it is there can be inherent structural advantages to that if, if you're lucky enough and the same with iron ore by the way in wa it's just so ridiculously abundant and cheap to get out of the ground it's just a huge advantage for us but then you talked about the idea of being best in coal and then wind just taking it away and i, I just i as I, as I listen to you say that, my, my instinctive thought started to go towards the idea of Kodak's an easy one. It's too it's too lazy an option, but it's the best one I can come up with. They were the best in film in the in the world until film ceased to matter. And there's something about that. I don't, I, I guess I'm, 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 I may have some follow up thoughts, but I just want your reflections on that, mate. Just the as an investor investing in businesses that, by definition, every business at least these days is is to some degree, if not entirely. Um, at the mercy of the changing whims of the world, whether that's tastes, technology, cost, uh, you know, wh- whatever it is, you know, nothing is nothing is constant but change, as they say. And so, to some degree, being the best in an industry is is good until that's just simply not necessary. The best camera maker is now irrelevant or almost irrelevant because every phone's got a camera. There's many many examples. Just I don't know if you have any. Just inst- you don't have none. Any instant thoughts on just that idea of the analogy of kind of being best in coal and wind comes in and takes your market away. Being the best is not even enough sometimes. Yeah, so I, I think the thing, uh, too, in my mind, if you're an advanced economy, what you want to be best is in IP creation. Because right. IP creation, the, the magic of IP creation is unlike unlike infrastructure, which um, you know is a combination of physical goods and your location and maybe a bit of luck in terms of what you've got on the ground and mm. things like that. Mm. Um, IP creation really is an opportunity where you can flush out, cre- create new things, right? So, so you use the example of um, a film, mm-hmm. right? You know, until somebody came up with this, you know, the digital camera, the idea that you know the f- that is an IP creation, right? And mm-hmm. then the IP creation allows you to um, benefit from that for some time, and then. Mm. The digital camera goes to the smartphone, and then the you know the smartphone makers make make money off it. So, yeah. you, I I truly believe that almost any IP creation also has a lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. But what you want to really do is you want to be ahead in 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 sort of you know you want to have the speed of innovation, basically, mm. in, and you can't really have speed of innovation in things that are commodity like and almost okay, and, and almost everything eventually becomes commoditized <laughs> right so you want to go from <laughs> yeah. when you you have to sort of see yeah. where the world is going right? right so if you see big corporations in the world are making climate promises then you whether or not you believe in climate change is yeah. almost immaterial at yes, that point right. what matters the most yep. is well everybody's talking about this this is what customers want yes, this huge. is where the markets are being created you want to be in that market mm-hmm. right if you want to be purely and and I think what happens really is very hard for for industry to 
give up current profits and any industry that cannot give up current profits yeah. is the one that actually gets destroyed historically right. kodak you know why did kodak get destroyed because it yeah. didn't want to give up current profits yeah. if you do not want to give up current profits it's almost that's how you dig your hole didn't it famously invent the first digital camera I, I'm pretty sure I've heard that story yeah, it, 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 and, and I put it aside because it's going to uh, well right. it's going to disrupt its own business <laughs> how are we going to still right? film if we have digital cameras yeah. right yeah. whereas the Apple basically made the iPod and then yeah. made the iPhone which yes. just disrupts the iPod because well you know that's how you stay relevant Yes. So, so I, I think, and that's the classic, I think, problem. And that's why, you know, even mm. if in terms of research dollars and stuff like that, you know, why aren't we doing more on hydro? Why aren't we doing more on yeah. co- uh, on uh, on wind? Why aren't we doing more on solar, right? Mm. Um, I mean, if we get so much sun, we should be doing I, something on solar. I, 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 don't want, I don't want to go on a massive tangent. Like that's what we tend to do on this podcast. I read Malcolm Turnbull's autobiography just recently. And, and people have views on Turnbull. I have my views on autobiographies because they tend to be reasonably self-serving. But put that aside, he talked a lot about, he was pretty passionate while he was in government about pumped hydro. The idea of kind of a battery in this sense, actually literally being when the sun's out, you pump water uphill and when the sun goes down, you let it come back downhill and, and, and spin the turbines. I'm no, I'm no hydrogeologist, but... That and not that I was a new idea that he came up with. There's plenty of people suggesting it in in old mines and all sorts of stuff. Is that not is that not the most obvious way to store energy at, at almost zero kind of ongoing cost, a bit of maintenance or whatever? Um, and it's not the only one, of course. I know Tesla's making batteries and a whole lot of other things going on, but I just it just staggers me that that we have not got any government almost anywhere with the vision to be starting to invest in some of these projects um, in any meaningful way, even those who. In theory, believe in it. Um, it, it. It just it boggles the mind that we have, as you say, both environmentally and economically. There's opportunities in front of us we're just not taking. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, what has re- happened off in the last say 15, 20 years is sort of the the ambit of um, moving ahead and doing development has sort of shifted mm. from government to industry, right? And you'd, you'd notice that most of the big changes are being pushed by industry, right? Mm-mm-mm. And I think, in, in, at least in our case, I think the problem is that um, as a small country, for the industry to actually be able to push ahead and make you know disruptive changes, it I think needs a little bit of a yeah, yeah. push, right? And I think that's that's I think what you know I almost don't expect government to innovate. Right. Okay. <laughs> My assumption is government yeah. is not going to innovate. Yeah. Uh, government is going to increasingly give less R and D dollars, um, and and therefore you'd expect. That that hole is going to be filled by industry and yeah. you know and and profit making is is usually you you see the disruption and profit making almost go hand in hand, yeah. right? So uh, and I think you know maybe you need to just bootstrap industry to some extent. Yeah. So I think that that's where the challenge is. Motley Fool Money financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. More bad news, this time for Cochlear. Um, really, really cool technology, really, really cool brand. A business that, frankly, is the leader in its space. And again, uh, yeah, speaking of Australian innovations and bootstrapping stuff, something that came out of a university. Was it Macquarie University, I want to say? I can't remember the guy's name. Can you remember the guy who invented it? It's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't quite. Uh, I, uh, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so really, really cool. Except <laughs> over, overnight, I think it was, or the day before, in the US, Cochlear has got to pay the best part of a $300 million US fine, another 70-odd million dollars of costs. Man, is it not always true that no matter what happens when you go to court, the lawyers are the winners? If, if, if the legal costs are a quarter of the fine, I, <laughs> anyway, that's a whole conversation for another day. I'm sure the lawyers earn their money in terms of the time and effort and work they put in, but there's got to be better ways of not torching money than paying lawyers. Anyway, for allegedly trampling on someone else's patent when it came to the technology in their devices. $400 million US among friends, is it? I think it was, close enough to, was that, call it half a billion, maybe a little bit more in, in Australian dollars. Uh, that's a decent chunk of change Cockley's got to find. Yeah, well, uh, I think I did the maths. It's 450 million Australian oh, uh, is the total okay, cool. total fine, Thanks, mate. Uh, inclusive of the the legal fees that they have to pay. Um, look, I don't know the merits of the case, and I don't understand the the case and what was the issue here. Um, I just have a couple of observations on this, right? Uh, just to point out the magnitude of this yeah. fine. So, yeah. 450 million dollars Australian is half Cochlear's cash balance. Wow, that is pretty. Pretty significant, right? Half of the cash balance is basically going to go woof away. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is about two and a half times yeah. the average free cash flow 
the company has generated over the last three years. And I'm, I'm sort of ignoring the 2020 where they didn't generate any cash flow because of mm-hmm. you know all sorts of things happening on the accounts. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money <laughs> to be is. paid. Uh, and I, th- I think this, in many of these cases, I think, again, I don't know whether it's poor judgment or what happened. Again, mm-hmm. I don't know the case. It's almost always better to settle yeah. <laughs> these things. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the only other thing I read is that the company had budgeted a significantly lesser, small amount um, for this case. So maybe, wow, they, okay. you know, um, maybe they didn't expect yeah. it to be this much. Is it hard for a company? I don't know if you know the legal stuff behind this. If you, if you, if you, Allow for a larger amount. Are you kind of not admitting guilt up front? Is there is there anything in the way of kind of the, the legal and and kind of PR and the public view? I, I don't know. Maybe this is inadmissible. I don't even know. But if I'm a lawyer, I'm going to say, hey, Cockley's put half a billion dollars in their books to cover the fine for this. They already think they're guilty. Is there some is there some nexus there, or am I am I imagining things? I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know that. I mean. Again, there's there's so many things about this, right? So there's a patent, you know, you know, or multiple patents here. A couple of actually, it seems like they had settled with one institute, but in a, any case, I I think it's just the magnitude of the fine is pretty big, right? Yes, yeah, huge. Yeah, and you know, it, it it I mean, it meaningfully dents your cash cash balance. It meaningfully dents, uh, you know, it's a meaningful dent. It'll take you a couple of years to actually recover that yeah, via yeah, free cash yeah. flow. So I mean, yeah, and and. I, I don't know what it says about strategy and things like that. Again, I haven't followed. Well, I think it's an int- it's an interesting observation, at least. It is. It is. Uh, it's. It's a. I'm. I don't know nothing about the technology. I don't know nothing about the process. I, I frankly haven't followed the court case super closely. I do wonder. And maybe this is a, just a rhetorical question. I don't necessarily want an answer. Or if, if you got one, feel free. That I wonder to some degree how, how much this is just business as usual, or at least, uh, you know, the cost of doing business. We know that for years, and I won't. I won't impute anyone by mentioning names of companies. But telcos and banks have kind of, over over decades, just paid fines every now and again to the regulator for overstepping the mark on advertising. And you've got to figure after the fifth or sixth time you've done it, there's some element of, look, guys, this might be too close to the line, but let's do it anyway. If you have to pay a fine, so be it, because you know the, ad, the advertising is worth it. Is there something in this which is just kind of like, you know, a bit of a, look, this tech is really good. Okay, it's infringing a patent. Maybe, that, maybe it was liberal, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was, I don't know. I, frankly, there's so many patents, I don't know how you keep track of them all, but again, that's what lawyers are paid for. Is there something where they're kind of like, okay, well, we did what we had to do. Um, a bit of Apple Samsung kind of comes back to mind of their kind of claim and counterclaim. Uh, how much of this is just kind of the cost of doing business in, in a modern tech world? Well, maybe the, maybe some of that is, is cost of doing business, right? But I mean, it, let's say this tech only made you a few hundred million dollars uh, yeah. thus far in free cash then flow. Then it was expensive. <laughs> then it was a very expensive deal, right? Because yeah. if, if, for example, if I don't know what this technology the issue is, but if this particular patent is currently there in their current products, either they have to get into a royalty arrangement mm. yeah, or they have to okay. stop using it. Yeah. Right. So it it's not just that it is about the right. fine, right? right there's right, there's right. follow on, yeah. um, you know, and and again, does it embolden other people? Does it may make other patent holders think that well they yeah. can go after you? So I I mean I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting from that point of view. It's the other thing I think it's that's that's interesting here is this is what like a twelve thirteen billion dollar market capitalization company something like that, right. but it's at that point where I think is at the tipping point where either you have to get a lot more scale and to get that you have to grow actually relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't actually handle these sort of patent claims. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if this you sort of thing- You wouldn't want another beca- one, would you? Huh? You wouldn't want another one. Yeah, if you had like a couple of these, yeah, you'd, yeah, you know, yeah. you'd, be, you'd be going back um, asking for some capital because you wouldn't <laughs> have capital to pay for fines. So, so I mean, that, that's, I think, the interesting thing here. I think the interesting thing is, you know, can, is the company in a, going to be able to scale up further because, you know, you really need to to mm-hmm. scale up to be able to deal with these sort of, you know, global patent issues. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, I do, the scale question is actually interesting. I mean, Cochlear is the market leader by a decent way in this area. So to some degree, scale, I guess, only comes with further market penetration dominance. I don't know how you otherwise scale in that space. It's not like a, and maybe, you know, this is both the, the is it, uh, conversation for another day, but it's interesting that, you know, the harder a product is to accept or take up, the harder it is to grow. On the other hand, hopefully that means there's bigger barriers to entry, right? If you can, I, I can open a, a cloud accounting, uh, we'll talk about that in a second, um, open a cloud accounting, you know, account with zero or MYB or Intuit or something, literally with, with probably a three three clicks of a button. 
Uh, so it's not hard to go to join or leave. That makes the market enormous. But it also means there's so much you can charge, there's so much money you can make before someone comes and undercuts you. If you're Cochlear or somebody else with a meaningfully, and maybe, it, maybe the same is true of, of you know, telco hardware, for example, phones and other things, to some degree, the, the cost and effort and hassle and, and complexity is its own barrier to entry, but it's also a pretty good mode, a pretty good way to protect your own business because someone else has got to do at least what you've done plus more to get the customer away from you. Yeah, I think so. I mean... Again, I don't know this, you know, I don't know the competitive dynamics well yeah. enough. Like, it, it, it's, so I think this is the thing, what, what, I, what I like to see. If you are a market leader in a growing segment, I'd expect that you should be able to grow, you know, top line comfortably for a long time, right? right I mean, right. achieve 20, 25% plus growth. And not all of that growth is going to show up into the bottom line, right? Yeah. Um, so... So You're only going to get 25% growth, though, if you can be easily adopted by a lot of people quickly, right? Like, Cochlear can't grow at 25% almost by definition because there's not going to be that many patients presenting. At, at some point, maybe this is maybe this is your point about scale, but if you're if you're if you're a industrial or, or complex sales process, for example, uh, with limited number of customers, the the does the sales process and the the growth, the, the the quantum of the growth, not depend on how easy it is to actually accept and take up your product. It does. Like again. As I said, I don't know, like, I mean, who the main competitors are and yeah. what they're doing. Like, you know, the, I think there's a company called Advanced Bionics mm-hmm. that is a competitor um, uh, to Cochlear. It, it's, this is, this is where, I, I think this is where it becomes mm-hmm. complex, right? How big is this market? If this market is pretty big, then you should be growing pretty quickly. If the market is, uh, then maybe it's a question of whether sales growth is not being achieved because sales and marketing is not up to yeah, up to the scale, yeah. um, or is the market not as big? I mean, there's a lot of questions. Again, this is this is this is a this is complex. I mm. think um, it's also you know the other. I think the other big problem sometimes is if you have competitors who are private mm. um, it becomes harder to sort of understand that market yeah because point. because the private pe- people are under the radar right they're not mm. also they don't mm. have these half yearly or quarterly reporting cycles you're yeah. not getting the data point from them it's really hard to tell what's actually going on it's in a that huge market. advantage being private right if, I mean as long as huge. you get well as long as you get access to the capital there are downsides as well but if you don't have to I mean I can I have this problem all the time with companies on disclosure, right? On one hand, we want a lot of disclosure as investors. Yes, we do. On the other hand, if I own that business either as a shareholder of a public or a private company, do I want the company I own to share that much information with its potential competitors or actual competitors? I really don't. It's a it's a fine line to walk, right? It's I guess it comes down to trust. But I think in a perfect world, I'd prefer less disclosure from someone I could trust completely <laughs> rather than more disclosure from someone I don't trust. But maybe those are two options that we just don't get the, the choice between. Yeah. Again, so I mean, it's it's um, yeah, it's a combination of things. Uh, uh, yeah. Again, mm. I don't follow this company that closely. Mm. To mm. you know, but you know, my my own sense is that you, know, you should be able to if you if you grow a top line, even at twenty percent for a long time, mm. and you grow your bottom line at a faster rate, at, at least cash flow, uh, you know, um, at at a reasonably fast clip, then it's all good. Um, if you can't grow fash, uh, cash flow at a reasonably quick pace, then yeah. I mean, I would wonder what is going on. Yeah. But again, it's neither here neither there. It's, it's you know the uh, the interesting thing is that the fine here or the court case doesn't seem to be with a competitor, right? Which is interesting. Yeah, true, good point. So um, <laughs> if it was with a competitor, that would actually be yeah. significantly more worrisome. All right, let's move on to, um, well, so he, this kind of takes me back a little bit mentally uh, to the first place we started in terms of what does a growing market mean? And I guess I'll ask a question and I'll drill down. Tech has been on an absolute tear of the last three or four months. And I think we'll probably, we've probably talked about this before, actually, so maybe it's not new news and maybe feel free to just refer back to previous comments we can move forward. But so Altium, one of the wax stocks, an acronym I think I said last time I desperately dislike because I just try to come up with something to kind of give a label to stuff for marketing purposes. doesn't really do much for me. Uh, great for the person who invented it and we all start talking about it as if it's a real thing. Uh, Fang, of course, was the original one out of the US. Was it Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google? Wax is WiseTech, Altium, Appen, Afterpay Zero. Is that right? All right, so W-A-A-X, Wax. Um, when it comes to, I'll get to Altium in a second, but I guess just your thoughts. While the while the the economy may not matter much and probably doesn't, uh, and even the market itself doesn't matter all that much, to some degree, 
the prices we're paying do depend a little bit on sentiment. And we've been, man, I mean, like, take Afterpay, right? We don't spend too much on, on, too long on this one, but it was a $40 stock and an $8 stock. Now it's $110 it closed at yesterday. A record is being added to the ASX 20 and the ASX 50. I can't remember a company that went straight from the 100 to the, to the 20 in recent times, but there you go. Afterpay is there. Um, just a story of its growth, right? So what's that? A 12-fold, 13-fold increase in eight months. That's a that's a pretty good <laughs> that's a pretty good story. Um, and yet, given given you know, so sentiment drove it down probably unreasonably. Sentiment drove it back up. Time will tell whether that's reasonably or unreasonably, whether the price is cut today is justified, cheap, or expensive. If it, when it comes to when it comes to prices, while the market level itself doesn't matter, we don't doesn't we don't need to care what the ASX or the S and P are doing per se. Does the does the kind of momentum, the vibe, the sentiment of the market ever give you pause to think, I want to own that company, but man, there's so much optimism now. So the trades are all in. The the, the, the crowd's heading a single direction here. Uh, I'm not, you know, maybe it's worth some more in the future, but gee, I'm paying up for for sentiment right now. Yeah, like, I mean, I do worry about that. It, like, it's only natural to worry about that. I think you can't avoid it. Yeah. Um, so, like, I have my own mechanisms. Like, my mechanism really is, I think I try to think about uh, the TEM. Like, you know, there's a total addressable market. And if the total addressable market is truly large, mm-hmm. then in that case, I don't worry too much about it. Okay. Because the reason I don't worry too much about it is really effectively I think of those companies as as companies where you can keep buying for right. a long time. Okay. Right? And, and therefore, like really, like I mean, you have to invest. You don't know whether the shares are going to go up or down because of sentiment, but I mean... Like I have a short list that I try to keep. Like, okay, well, this is where I want to put my dollars in, and and these are are really I think where the industry is going over the next ten, fifteen, twenty years, right? And that's enough, a long enough window that I'm going to be able to buy some at good prices, some at even better prices, maybe some at higher prices, and things like that. So that's how I would I approach it. Now I think that the key though, and I think this is the ultimate. There will be instances and there will be moments where it will not be clear whether or not sort of growth has tapered. I, I think that's right. a, that's a, that happens all the time. It's not it's not unique to Altium. It it's it or and uh, you know I, I was alluding to that that maybe is the case even is uh, you know it looks like the growth is tapering for say cochlear right now right uh, a couple of different ways at least in, in in my own framework I think about these in different ways so. You, you would think that in uh, in COVID, digital has taken a push, right? right. But, there, but there are certain, certain digital technologies that are must-have and certain digital technologies that are nice to have, right? Okay. And if you're in the must-have category, you have seen explosion of growth. If you're in, the, <laughs> if you, if you're in a nice-to-have category, maybe if people are actually you know, pulling back on that spending. That's one. That's okay. That's not a problem because eventually you get back to a normal and the nice to have is also going to expand, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So there's that that aspect. But then the other aspect is sometimes what happens is companies claim and we think that their market is large, mm-hmm. but actually what happens is their market is actually not that large. And as they start hitting sort of that upper end of their market, they're not growing as fast mm-hmm. because their market is actually not large, mm-hmm. right? And and they haven't been able to get into the other product lines or you know diversify their products enough to be able to actually grow at that rate. Because you know the thing is, growing at thirty percent when you're two hundred million dollar uh, revenue is different from growing at thirty percent when you're one billion dollar revenue, which is different from growing at thirty <laughs> percent if you're a hundred <laughs> yeah. billion dollar revenue. Yeah, Those exactly. are completely in you know, tens they of really billion, dollar, completely different ball games, yes, right? Exactly. And and I think. That's where the problem is, yeah, right? Yeah. So, and and sometimes it's not clear. In 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 Altium's yeah. case, there is a there's a question mark right now mm-hmm. as to, well, they're basically saying, well, what we said, our guidance, we are, we, they're they're they are um, they're basically offloading a business called Tasking that they purchased in two thousand one for seventy five million. They're selling it for one hundred and ten million plus ten million more contingent on some milestones being hit. So, assuming that they have generated enough cash flow from this business, yep. maybe it's yep. okay. Yep. But 
Otherwise, they've not made. You know, that's neither in yeah. loss, neither here. You know, you know so I, I, I'm, I'm a, I mean, it's a little bit of shares, though, right? Like, it doesn't really matter what you paid for it. The question really is: Is it worth more to, to us or somebody else right now? Should we offload it or should we keep it? That, yeah. In terms of like, you know, even they sold it for a ninety percent loss. If it, if it's, if it's, if they're financially better off getting rid of it, you, you take as much as you can, get rid of the business to, to right size, which is a horrible kind of corporate term. But you know what I mean? The idea of you, you want to be focusing on the stuff that's going to make you money into the future. Exactly. So so the thing is that then the, the, the company is saying that we're going to focus all in on being on the cloud. Yeah. So, I mean, but that's something to remember, right? They're not all in on the cloud, yeah. which is in one way a disadvantage. Yeah. That's a negative mark. At the same time, if you're realizing it and you're yeah, doing something about it, that's it's an advantage, right? right? Yes, so it, yes. it, it, things work both ways. Yes, that's so true, um, isn't it? And so, and then, and I think, you know, Putting a sale out and at the same time saying, "Well, you know, this affects our guidance because mm. uh, you know this was contributing to the guidance and sale." This is like a little. Is it like a? It's a little bit of a quasi yeah. way of saying, yeah. "Well, maybe there's a quasi downgrade here. Uh, we may not hit our guidance because of you know X, Y, and Z reason." Right, right. So all of those things are in my books. They mm. are like okay, mm. reasons to watch mm. and from from an investing point of view, I think the only thing I can say is. This is not the point at which yeah. you add to a position. Yeah, right. This is the po- if you hold a position, you hold it yep. because it's you know information is not clear. So traditionally, this company has done well, so you keep continue holding it. Mm-hmm. But this is not one of those things. Well, the market has is misjudging anything. Okay, right. The market is not really misjudging anything yeah, because yeah. well, the market is basically saying it's exactly like I am saying. Well, I have some question marks. Mm. Maybe it's this way. Maybe it's that way. Yeah, I don't know yet, and the answer is only going to be known mm. in the future. Maybe management also don't know what the answer is, right? I mean, yeah. many times management don't know. Everybody, management, I'm sure, is optimistic that we're going to be, you know, this big, ten times this size. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in the future, and they may well, but they may not, right? Exactly. But, that's the risk. And 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 you don't. And and it's one of those things with n- smaller niche markets, which is really hard to pinpoint. Right. If the if if it was like okay, I'm cloud computing and I'm the cloud infrastructure yeah, provider, yeah, it's very right. easy to it's a it's a relatively easy to see. This market is humongous yeah. and it's going to and, and you benchmark against its own competitors, right? You look at the other players in the cloud computing market. Say, right, well, there's Amazon, there's IBM, there's yeah, you know, everyone else out there, Google. Some everyone's doing something. I can benchmark that. I know what's going on and how exactly. it is. Yeah. So yeah. It's, sometimes it's hard. It, it, sometimes it's not that you know people are lazy or management is lazy or analysts are lazy. It's just sometimes it is reality is yeah. it's really hard. The same thing as I said with cochlear it's really hard for me to put a number on what actually the total uh, total market opportunity is yeah, right? right it's really hard to know because sometimes the markets are just complicated yeah yeah i like it mate um we we're going to talk about an early christmas present i uh, know so we'll talk about that one actually early christmas present for bank shareholder i'll leave the next point that's a bit of a giveaway there um apra the australian prudential regulatory authority it sounds like the honestly the most boring regulator in the world, doesn't? It? Unless you're unless you're a banking person, imagine working for the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority. Anyway, do important work, and I'm glad they're there. They have said overnight the banks no longer are restricted to paying out only 50% as a maximum of their earnings to shareholders in dividends. Effectively, APRA saying the crisis, financially speaking, at least is over. We're no longer worried about how much money you've got, how much what additional reserves you need. Of course, they still got the basic reserves that were there pre-COVID, but effectively they're rolling back some all of the change to the rules and saying you you know back back to pre-covid rules we're no longer requiring you to hold extra capital or be extra conservative they're saying please be prudent which is i'm not sure whether in regulatory land that's enough to change people's view or just to cover the regulators say well we told them to in any case mate the um the dividends are going to go up this is going to be a nice nice christmas present for those people relying on those bank dividends for their frankly bill paying particularly for their self-funded retirees yeah well Again, you know my views on that. But it's, it's, uh, um, I should have, I should have talked about it at the top, shouldn't I, with the yeah. banks? Yeah, I mean it's good for those people who want the um, the dividend and the frank <laughs> credits and things like that. Um, people looking for growth and looking for actually good returns going mm-hmm. forward. I don't know. I don't, I don't think the banks are uh, the place to put your money. I mean, if you want five percent, six percent, yeah, annualized. I mean, you can get the dividend, but stock price can go down. Right, right, right. Well, you you know, net net, you might actually be behind. So yeah. there's that. Um, but yeah, like it's I funny, mean, isn't it? I mean, they're almost they're almost better compared to for those people at least to a to a challenger annuity or something similar rather than genuinely compared to the, the equities market in the same sort of way. The you know I'm putting my money over here. The capital value, at least in a in a in a annuity, effectively doesn't change. But you don't not nor do you normally get it back. It's kind of you're paying a lump sum now for an income stream over the rest of your life. That feels like what most bank shareholders are doing these days. Yeah, like I mean, they are basically quasi um, 
bonds in mm. some sense, right? <laughs> For which you're paid up front <laughs> with no guarantee that you'll get your uh, capital back. Yeah, that's but, true. But yeah, that's what it is. All right, mate. Um, I, the one I was going to leave, I am going to leave, is the advice for new retail investors. There's a, a story out only uh, only yesterday or today about the massive growth in new online share traders and what's happening there. We're going to leave that. I'll... Um, we might hold that over for maybe next week or the week after. I'll, I've, we've got a little bit of something to unveil a little bit, so we'll hold that. We will, though, finish off, surprise, surprise, with a look inside, a dig inside our foolish mailbag, mate. We'll get on with it now. I um, I got a question from Gary. Now, Gary has put put us in, to some degree, order, and you, you may disagree with this. I, I will, I will tell you, I'll read it as written, and then you can, uh, you can enact a coup should you feel necessary. Gary says, hi, Scott in brackets, President, and Doc, Vice President. Now, I'm not sure whether that's the right order, but in any case, between the two of us, we're running the country now, which I'm, I'm okay to say. He says, I've got another question for the podcast. I recently purchased a small position in an ETF, Australian Tech Shares, through BetaShares, as there are some interesting companies in their holdings. My question is about their management fee of 0.48% per annum. He says, as most of the companies in this fund's holdings don't pay a dividend, how do they fund the yearly fee? I always assumed ETFs took their fees from the dividends before allocating the remainder to their holders. I see ATEC, which is the name of the, the ETF, hold a very small portion of, uh, of Australian cash in the holdings. Is this to fund the fees? Thanks, Gary. Doc, how... So I'll ask you two questions, actually. The first question I'll ask you is how do the fees get taken? Secondly, I'll ask you about the management fee and whether half a percent is attractive enough to recommend an investment in this sort of fund. So firstly... How do the funds get their dividends if the companies themselves, sorry, the fees, if the companies themselves don't pay a dividend? Yeah, so I have, well, I don't know exactly mechanics, but a couple of different ways this happens. One is, as he has pointed out, Gary, um, the cash. So you have cash, you can take some cash out of it. The other thing to remember is that if it's an ETF um, and it's probably indexed to something, it's going to get rebalanced every so often. So when you rebalance stuff, you'd probably have some profits that mm-hmm. you're you know, taking off the books or you'd have some, you know, you, you basically have an opportunity at the rebalancing time to get and grab some cash out of it, right? And, um, you know, effectively you could sell some of the shares in the market to fund the fees. But, you know, there are many different ways in which you can get... If you want to take fees, you can always take fees. It's not (laughs) hard. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But the 0.5 sounds high to me. Like, I mean... um, I don't know. Yeah, 0.5 sounds like, I mean, 0.5 for basically a passive index. Because, I mean, effectively, this index is managed or is created by someone, right? And so this is basically fees that, you know, yeah. both the, the ETF provider and the index uh, provider are, you know, sharing. So... You as, as an investor, would you buy an ETF for the half a percent? I mean, we know we know for generally speaking, managed funds tend to lag the index, and largely it can be explained almost entirely, largely because it's an average by definition, but can be explained entirely by the fact that fees are present. In theory, the more fees you pay, the lower your chance of beating the market or getting a decent return. Is there is there a point at which you'd say, I mean, even if these even if these justified by the by the effort, is it is it too much at some point? Would you say, look, you know, it's just too hard. I'm not going to pay that anymore. Well, the, like I mean, the answer is depends, right? I mean, um, let's say the market, you know, the ASX, uh, let's say it's going to do 6% annualized and you think this ETF is going to do like 15% mm. annualized, then the fee is very justified, right? Even if it could do 10% annualized or 12% annualized, the fee is, well, the fee is actually a very small fee to right, pay. Right. It really depends on what I think you're going to get out of it or what your objectives are, right? So, I mean, I, mean, I, I could pay 1% as fee, if mm. uh, you know if somebody's going to deliver me thirty percent per annum, <laughs> I'll pay yeah. I'll pay five percent as free for for that. So you know, I think yeah. Again, it depends. Like I, I mean, yeah. I don't. It depends, really. Is, yeah. is it, yeah. uh, lower <laughs> is always better. I'll awesome. take lower if I can get the same thing. <laughs> All right, lower, totally, yeah, I'll, totally, I'll take right. the lower one. But if I really need this because I think it's going to deliver me something yeah. that I can't get elsewhere, well, yes. I'll gr- begrudgingly pay the fees. Now, speaking of things you can't get elsewhere. The only place to get Doc and Kevin's recommendations at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities is, surprise, surprise, to join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. And you can do that by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Do yourself a favor, buy yourself a Christmas present. You've spent money on family and friends. You've decked the halls. You've set the table. You've bought the food. If you've got a very, very small amount of money left over, I recommend you join 
one of the best value investment services in the world. I only say one of the best, Doc, because I'm going to include, I'm going to bracket share advisor in that as well. One of the very best uh, investment services. It does a value for money, and frankly, the returns are spectacular too. I can't claim very one of the very best terms of returns. They're excellent, but I haven't done the numbers, and ASIC would take a dim view of making that claim without backing it up. I can say, though, one of the very best value investment services, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Do yourself a favor. Buy yourself a Christmas present. Buy yourself a membership to Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Now, Doc, that does finish us up. We'll be back on Sunday with a mailbag, a special mailbag episode. Special regular. <laughs> but in the meantime, before we do, you don't want to miss it, do you? So make sure you subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast. Do it through iTunes. Do it through Android. Do it through Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Leave us a review or a recommendation. Tell your friends. Send them a link. Say, hey, Motley Fool Money, that's pretty good. Those guys, they, they know what they're talking about. Join. Find out a little more about what you can do to improve your financial lives. It's almost resolution time. So maybe that can be your and their New Year's resolution. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by simply leaving your email address at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. You will get some marketing from us there. You'll also get some emails from me every now and again. In the meantime, until Sunday, that's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back then with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.